Hello and welcome back to Spotlight On. Today the spotlight is on David Goldberg, recorded on location at Germano Studios in New York City. David was visiting New York from his home base in Washington, D.C. during the Senate impeachment trial of U.S. President Donald Trump back in January. Seems like a lifetime ago now. David is currently an advisor with TPG, one of the world's largest private equity firms. There, he works on guiding new investments, as well as working closely with existing portfolio companies, such as Book My Show in India. David's held senior roles with live entertainment, digital media, and e-commerce companies, including Ticketmaster, YouBet.com, SportsVision, and Jam Productions. At Ticketmaster, David served as one of three members of the Office of the Chairman, who were collectively responsible for overall management of the global ticketing giant. David was CEO of NASDAQ-listed YouBet.com, at the time the nation's largest legal online wagering site, and he oversaw its operations and ultimate sale to Churchill Downs. As executive vice president at SportsVision, David helped guide the interactive business of the creator of the yellow first-in-ten line for football and other sports broadcast technology enhancements. He started his career as a talent buyer at Jam Productions in Chicago and also helped Jam create and launch Tunes.com, an early digital music pioneer, way back in the mid-90s. Those are just some of his professional milestones. David is also a fun and funny person, which I think you'll find comes through in our talk. Enjoy. Rather than try to explain who David is and what he does, um, I'm going to let you tell us what you do. Now, I'll tell you what I'm allowed to tell you at the moment. These days, I more or less work with a few different private equity firms, and you know, until I got into this, I didn't know the difference between venture capital, private equity, mutual fund, you name it. You can think of private equity, for those of you who aren't as familiar with it, uh, the, firm, the biggest firm I work with is a company called TPG, used to be called Texas Pacific Group, uh, although San Francisco is really their home now. And they go around to pension funds, to uh, high net worth individuals, billionaires around the country, sovereign funds, and they get them to give them capital that they then go and invest on their behalf to get better returns than hopefully you could get by investing in a mutual fund or a stock. So TPG has a history of investing in entertainment. Uh, TPG owns CAA. TPG owns Cirque du Soleil. Um, With them, uh, I've invested in a ticketing and live entertainment business in India, ticketing company in China, uh, record label business in China. I would like to find something in the United States of America to invest in. That would be nice. Less time on planes. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) One of the distinguishing factors between private equity and venture capital is uh, typically private equity writes much larger checks and oftentimes looks for much bigger positions in companies than early stage venture investors, which is frustrating for me because I like finding early opportunities. But so in that advisory work with TPG and a couple of other of these private equity firms, I get to work with portfolio companies, so companies they've already invested in, help them find new investment opportunities and maybe steer those through to actually a completed investment. And um, it's, it's all in and around live entertainment, ticketing, and sports betting, which are really the only three things I think I've ever done. So uh, it's all I know about. I, I can't do healthcare. I can't do clean energy. I could lie about those, but I don't know anything about those. But because of that, I've spent sort of a better part of a 30-year career developing lots of great relationships, cultivating relationships uh, with folks like Lawrence, who once upon a time was Larry. But uh, grown up. yeah, you did. You did. It happens. 
but because of that, I get to meet interesting sorts of folks. Um, it's wonderful when you have a long-standing relationship with someone and, and you get to experience something new through their eyes, but it's also great. I had never been to India before we made this investment in the company, and it's been a fascinating market to learn, fascinating people to work with, and sort of I, I've gotten to this point, I guess, in my career progression where the people thing comes first, and I evaluate an opportunity first and foremost based upon do I like the people, do they seem like good people. Um, then I look at what the opportunity is, and then is there something that I could do to meaningfully impact that opportunity. If it doesn't pass the first test on the people, then it's just not worth the time because you got to go through the trenches ultimately sometimes with these people, and if you don't like them or worse yet, you don't trust them, it's, it's really not worthwhile. How is that? Is that That's what right. I do now? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Okay. Of the um, of the three things, what was it? Live entertainment, ticketing, and sports, sports betting. betting. Yep. Um, which was the first thing you got involved with professionally? Live entertainment. So as a college freshman, I had no clue what I was going to do. I didn't know what I was going to major in. I didn't like anything other than drinking beer at college. And um, I sort of stumbled into working on the activities board at my college and I've, there's no good reason why they actually chose me to to be on there I had no background in music I grew up in St. Louis Missouri which is one of the worst music markets in the world possibly we were fed a steady diet of classic rock and hair metal and so uh, luckily I had an older brother who loved the blues so I got a good schooling in the blues. But for some reason, they picked me to be on the committee. And um, the person that hired me uh, was a guy named Don Sullivan, who is now Mike Luba's partner. And I just loved promoting concerts on campus. And we got to bring, being in Chicago, I went to school in Chicago, we got to do so many great blues shows. We could do, you know, Coco Taylor and Buddy Guy and Otis Rush. Um, and these guys all lived there, so they could just drive up, play a show, and go home. It was fantastic. And then, you know, we got to do bigger shows like, you know, Elvis Costello, Echo and the Bunnymen. Great bluesman. Great bluesman. <laughs> Ian McCulloch, one of the underrated bluesmen of all time. I found something that I loved, which was um, I was never – I'm a I'm – a, Frustrated drummer. Uh, I hope most everyone in here is is a quality musician, but at least some type of musician. But um, I love the behind-the-scenes aspect of doing a show. And really that sort of rush of when the artist hits the stage and the crowd screams and knowing you had some small part in making that happen, that was pretty cool. Right after college, I migrated to becoming a professional concert promoter working for Jam Productions in Chicago, one of the, still one of the largest independent companies. They never sold to AEG or Live Nation. And what I learned there was, you know, doing this on a much even uh, bigger scale, I got to work with a lot of cool bands early on uh, in rough markets. So I was not allowed to promote in Chicago or Minneapolis, which are our two big markets. I got Peoria, Illinois, Des Moines, Iowa, Duluth, Minnesota, um, Appleton, Wisconsin. Um, but I also got the chance to work with a lot of great booking agents early on, guys like Mark Geiger and Don Muller, and they would trust me with bands like Jane's Addiction or Nirvana or Pearl Jam in some of these B and C markets. And... Um, learning how to research in the days before the internet um, how bands like that would perform when there was no radio in those markets that was playing those bands. Maybe you had a college radio station, but lots of times you didn't. I would literally call record stores and talk to the manager of the record store and find out what was selling and what was, you know, what wasn't. And you know, those guys became sort of a lifeline for us, but that's true, you know, research. That gave way, that career gave way. I guess the, the epiphany for me in that role was I realized the company I was working for was essentially a mom-and-pop company. It was two founders that owned it all, ran it, um, and I also knew I was not related to mom or pop, and so I didn't have a big future there. Um, 
And that's when I made the jump into the ticketing world. And I went to work for Ticketmaster in Chicago. At the time, we were owned by the Pritzker family in Chicago, big, uh, wealthy family. They own Hyatt Hotels, uh, a bunch of other industrial conglomerates. And this was uh, 93, and it was right when the whole Pearl Jam mess was breaking. And, you know, two weeks before I was booking Pearl Jam concerts, two weeks later I was Pearl Jam's enemy. Um, but it was, it was interesting because I was still talking back and forth to those guys while they were going after Ticketmaster for antitrust. So, but that's when I learned ticketing for the first time. What was the state of ticketing in 1993-94? Ticketing, I realize a lot of you won't, necessarily understand this. They don't know what 1993 is. No, no. <laughs> it's a rumor. The uh, tickets were primarily sold through what we called outlets. They were record stores, grocery stores, department stores that had physical computers in them and ticket printers and you would line up and buy tickets. We also sold them via the phone. You could call number and buy them on the phones. Um, but there was no internet. There was no way to purchase at that time online. There was no online. The most interesting thing, and I guess if, if you want to talk about something that's probably impacted my career arc from that time period, was during that time a service started and got big called America Online. And AOL was not the internet. AOL was a proprietary dial-up network. You got your little disk in the mail, you popped it in your computer, and it gave you a local phone line to call. And that gave you access to whatever content they had in this proprietary network. Well, we had um, an enterprising operations team in the Chicago office at Ticketmaster. We worked with the Chicago Cubs, who were a Ticketmaster client at the time in Chicago, and they were owned by the Tribune Corporation, Chicago Tribune, WGN-TV. They had made a significant investment in America Online, and they said to us, could you put the Cubs schedule and the phone numbers and the list of outlets into America Online so that when people are looking up Chicago Cubs within America Online, they can see how to buy tickets, they can see where to call and, and what the schedule is. And our operations guy said, yeah, but I think we could actually rig up a system to try and sell tickets because it's not this Wild West internet that people are reading about. It's, it's a safe environment. People have already put their credit card in because they were paying by the minute for access to the service. So we built the first online ticketing gateway. It was not internet, but it was an online ticketing gateway for the Chicago Cubs. And there was one computer in the office that actually had direct connect into the AOL gateway. So we could see when a customer had entered Chicago online, our area of America online, and when they were looking at tickets or information. And it was so novel that it was like someone was ringing a bell when that happened, and we'd all flood back to the ops area, and we'd just stare at it. It was like looking at the matrix. You're just looking at a screen of, of data. There's nothing really there. And the ultimate epiphany came when we finally sold a ticket to somebody. And we did what we now know is taboo, but there were no rules then. We didn't understand anything then. The guy bought the ticket. The first thing we did was pick up the phone and call the guy. Um, and, and our customer service person said, you could have bought this ticket at the Cubs box office. Um, we see you don't live too far from Wrigley Field. Ooh, privacy issues. Um, <laughs> you could have called uh, an operator on the phone. You could have gone to a Rose Records store or Dominic's grocery store. Why did you choose to buy the ticket this way? And he said, because I don't like dealing with people. And hung up the phone. And it was literally one of those, this is going to be big. <laughs> There's a lot more of those people out there. It was the first ticket that Ticketmaster ever sold online. It might be the first ticket sold online because I don't think anyone was doing it on the internet at that point. Um, but that was sort of, all right, anything I do from here on forward is involving this type of technology. Just as much as I loved music and loved the music industry, the idea of marrying this technology into an industry I love was, was it. 
at that point, how many versions of the Ticketmaster system existed? Meaning there was a, basically that regional roll-up model. I remember a time where you could, from a human point of view, do a national campaign with Ticketmaster, but mm -hmm. the humans were each operating different platforms. What was the landscape of that all about? If I remember the numbers right, we had probably 13 host systems in North America, and this goes back to mainframe computer days. That's why they were referred to this way. Each host system, for instance, Illinois had its own host, so tickets sold within the state of Illinois went through one central computer and reservation system. Indiana, Ohio, Kentucky, and West Virginia had their own host system for that region. New York probably had two hosts, one for New York City, one for, you know, the broader region. And you couldn't, if you called a phone operator who only had access to the New York City host, they couldn't sell you tickets for Chicago. They didn't have access to that host system. So there was no way to do a national on-sale and coordinate it. Um, you, we did ultimately arrange some uh, phone centers so that operators had codes that allowed them to log into these different systems. Hmm. But these were distinct, unique ticket-selling systems that didn't really talk to each other. And we had to take them down for two, three, four hours every night to back up to replicate to an offline uh, uh, backup system. So, you know, between, call it 1 a.m. and 5 a.m., you couldn't even buy tickets. There was just, you know, there was nothing available to you. Was that a function of the Ticketmaster architecture or the business of buying up regional ticket companies? Yes. Yes. So one complicated the other. Mm -hmm. More to do with the, the way the Ticketmaster system was architected. It was, you know... A few students at Arizona State University in 1974 who uh, came up with the original code, which is still buried in there somewhere. Um, we used to say that in 74, this programmer, Pete Gadwa, came up with what at the time was probably the best uh, set of code for selling tickets online or, no, it wasn't online then, but, you know, on computers. And uh, since then, Ticketmaster has executed about 5 million exceptions to that code. And that's part of the challenge that that company has. And I love it dearly and know them well. And my, some of my best friends, and I still do work with them from time to time. But it, it, it's that legacy of having to make so many changes to an original code base that makes it difficult, makes it very difficult. Yeah, I've always thought of it as... Uh trying to uh, refurbish the train car while the train was barreling down the tracks and you just don't have the option to stop the train for any length of time. No, and, and now it's more like the plane is in midair and you're trying to retool it. Yeah. So it's tough. They've done a great job of abstracting some of the older lines of code and some of the more inflexible portions of the system so that they can uh, iterate and develop much more quickly now, but it took a lot of time just even to get to that stage. Mm -hmm. I remember a story, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but I want to believe it's true, around um, when they were talking about uh, relaunching the Ticketmaster platform and sort of modernizing the platform, and they had one of the big five consulting firms come in and do a review, and the recommendation that they came back with um, was you should uh, go to one of the major computer science universities and fund a, pro a COBOL program so that you can make sure that COBOL programs are still being minted mm -hmm. every year. That was the strategy to deal with their legacy platform. <laughs> and, and I think actually they're enacting the strategy. Um, look, it still is the, the most powerful system for selling the most tickets in the shortest period of time that you can. And some of it's just brute force, but a lot of it is, you know, at the heart, some, some pristine code that uh, unfortunately has been accepted a bit. Yeah, yeah. So um, you're in Chicago. Mm -hmm. um, what are you doing for Ticketmaster in Chicago? I am a general manager. So we had three general managers in Chicago, one who worked for sports teams, one who worked for arts organizations, and I did music. And that meant that my job was signing up clients to use Ticketmaster. Um, so my old company, Jam Productions, was a big client. Promoters all around the Midwest, uh, small clubs. And then uh, after a few years of doing that, what my predecessor in the job uh, had 
told me to do was to learn how to do contracts. He said, the less you have to rely on the LA office to do your contracts, one, the faster you'll get your work done, but two, you'll really understand the nuts and bolts of the organization, which was great advice. I got to know our contracts so well that actually when the Pearl Jam antitrust lawsuit came up and we hired these ungodly expensive consultants to work with us, they would start addressing uh, things to me to David Goldberg Esquire, um, which <laughs> I thought was the best thing ever. (laughs) Exactly. Um, At that point, I wanted to work in the online business at Ticketmaster that was now um, nascent but growing in Los Angeles. And I was given the option that if I wanted to do that, I had to move to L.A., Um, but if I wanted to stay in Chicago, I was basically going to keep doing what I was doing. And interestingly, over the time I was there, the Pritzker family sold Ticketmaster to Paul Allen, which a lot of people forget that there was a a nanosecond there where Paul Allen owned Ticketmaster before Barry Diller came in and and acquired it from Paul. Paul Allen being? Microsoft co-founder and uh, a guy that knew a thing or two about technology. I didn't want to leave Chicago and decided to leave Ticketmaster at that point and went to sort of back with my old company, Jam Productions, but we did my first ever startup um, back in the early digital music days. We created a company at first that was called Jam TV, which was about taking Jam's concerts that we were promoting and producing and putting them live on the internet, either via real audio. Um, There was no video uh, streaming at the time. Audio, we used to describe it, it's streaming audio at the time sounded like AM radio in a tunnel. And, you know, maybe there were three people at a time kind of listening to what we were doing. It was exciting as hell, though. Oh, yeah. It was really fun. Then um, we bought a company in Berkeley called Tunes.com, if it only had been (laughs) iTunes.com. But um, we ran one of the first destination music sites. And then we did a deal with uh, Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone, and we ran RollingStone.com as well. So we had our broadcast music site. We had a destination music site, iTunes, which had deep artist information and ability to buy music. And then we had RollingStone.com, which um, over time we slowly but surely digitized their archives, but also got their writers more comfortable with releasing um, other material and content maybe that didn't go into the magazine, and then ultimately the magazine content online too. Um, We sold that business in 99, and then I helped start up a company called Sport Vision. And at Sport Vision... This is the first time like my mom ever sort of understood visibly what it was I was doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we invented the yellow first and ten line on NFL football broadcasts or college football broadcasts. <laughs> For all of its technological advancement, it's just really a fancy green screen is all it is. You understand what colors you're allowed to paint and what colors you're not. So don't paint the player's uniform color, but paint the green of the grass. Now, the problem is if the player slid in the grass and the uniform became green like the grass, you'd end up painting the leg anyway. It was a really cool business. We created the virtual strike zone in baseball that you now see that's pretty pervasive, virtual advertising insertion that goes in baseball behind home plate. If you watch Mexican soccer, you'll see it on the field. They put virtual ads while you're watching TV. I always wondered about the ads behind home plate. So that was you mm-hmm. guys. That's yep. interesting. Yep. Um, it took me so long to realize they weren't there. They weren't there. <laughs> yes. Well, what happened, originally the, it was expensive and usually only one camera angle was able to do the shot that had the virtual ad. Ads. So the the straight on home the home plate from yeah. center field shot had the ad, but if you saw it from an off angle, it was just blank green, and then you you were let into the secret at that point. It was um, there was a group of engineers at Fox Sports that originally created the glowing hockey puck. It was awful for a few reasons, not the least of which the intelligence was actually built into the puck. So this was now a $1,000 hockey puck. And if you've ever been to the upper deck at the old Boston Garden at Chicago Stadium, if a drunk hockey fan has a puck in their hand and you go and try and take it from them, that's the last thing you will ever do. So while it was interesting technology, that was a flaw in the implementation. Um, that group of engineers we pulled out of Fox. And shot them. <laughs> 
and they figured out how to create the intelligence server side, not in the actual uh, uh, item itself. And we had a, a few um, a few important characteristics for whether or not what we call them a broadcast technology enhancement would be worthwhile. It had to be something that happened often during the game. It had to be something that was hard for the naked eye to see. And it had to be something that was impactful or meaningful in the outcome of the game. And if you could meet those three characteristics, then it probably was a worthwhile thing to enhance for the audience at home. So think strike zone. It's really hard to tell exactly if a pitch is a strike or not if you don't have that frame of reference. Where is the first down line? You've got guys on either end of the field, but in the middle of the field, you can't really tell exactly where it's at. In NASCAR, which was our most sophisticated product, being able to tell on the far end of the track while you're watching on TV which racer is in which position is pretty much impossible. But if you can point down with a pointer and have their name up top, you can then see that. The interesting challenge in in NASCAR was essentially what we were doing is we were putting a, a telemetry box on each car, uh, which had its own challenges because these guys are radical about what you can and can't put on their cars. The next thing was we were using GPS technology. Well, the satellites are way up in the skies, and these cars are moving at hundreds of miles an hour within centimeters of each other, and GPS doesn't do that well for those kind of speeds and those distances. So we had one of these brainstorming sessions with the engineers, like how do we fix this? And the, this is like one of these great absent-minded professors, like there's papers all over the table, you know, they look like Christopher Lloyd and Back to the Future, and this guy goes, we collapse the distance between the satellite and the cars. And he's like, I've, I've got it. We're like, Okay, how do you do that? You race on mountaintops. Exactly, <laughs> or in, in the sky. He said, no, no, no. We take a boom crane, and we hang the crane over the track, and we fake it out like that's the satellite. And that way, it's only hundreds of feet away oh. from the cars. And they're like, that's what you meant. That would have been better. Like, tell me that. Um, I think it ceases to be a satellite at that point. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but that was it. And then all of a sudden, you could literally, these cars going 200 miles an hour, you could tell relative distances within a centimeter. And it was fascinating data for the drivers, for the fans, for everybody. The reason that business, and that business just sold three years ago for a fraction of what it should have, and this is another good lesson on startups, is um, it was a cost center for the production. Mm -hmm. So Fox, ESPN, CBS had to pay us to supply that service. And what companies do is they try and minimize costs. We weren't attached to any real revenue. And the reason we weren't, and this is, is archaic rules of sports leagues, you take the NFL, for example. We were always like, why don't you have the Home Depot guy out and paint the, white, the yellow line and sell it as a massive sponsorship to Home Depot? The league and the broadcasters have what they call, are called frozen rights meaning it's a right that the broadcaster doesn't have and a right that the league doesn't have. And the league argued that the yellow first and ten line was an on-field sponsorship and therefore belonged to the league. The broadcaster said, show me in the stadium where that yellow line is, and then you can have that right. It's not there. It's only on the broadcast. Therefore, I, as the broadcaster, should have the right. And literally, no one was willing to give on it. So it's they, got, they both got 100% of zero. That's right. And to this day, it's still not monetized. It's an, it's an unbelievable enhancement for the viewing audience that has no revenue attached to it, other than people demand it as a part of the broadcast now. Um, so lesson learned. Attach yourself to revenue when you can, not costs. <laughs> yeah. So um, sports vision. Mm -hmm. You wind up back at Ticketmaster. Was there an interim step between that? Um, no, so, well... And TM changed hands. You were out doing your thing, and TM mm -hmm. was out doing their thing, and you wound up back together somehow. So, uh, this was still in Chicago. Sport Vision was in Chicago. In addition to the broadcast uh, technology side of the business, we had a big interactive side. And we ran websites for about a third of the NFL teams, 
Um, we actually ran four baseball team websites before MLBAM existed. We ran a bunch of hockey team websites. And even Fox Sports, when Rupert Murdoch tore down the original incarnation of News Digital, he forced each of the divisions to run their own websites. And a guy named Ross Levinson was running FoxSports.com at the time. And we had one of the, we, we had the only private label high-end content publishing systems in sports. And what that means is in the world of sports, there are data feeds coming out of every sporting event, pitch by pitch, play by play, second by second information accounts of what's going on in every game. We had built a system that allowed for the ingestion of that content and the publishing of that content without human hands needing to, to be involved. And therefore, you could publish real-time sports content on the fly, Fox Sports outsourced all of FoxSports.com to us. So we had this great interactive business, and as you probably recall, in the early 2000s, any interactive business that was based upon advertising sales just fell through the floor because the ad sales market disappeared overnight, basically, for uh, online media companies. So we sold off that interactive division. And I didn't know anything about broadcast television. Everything I've told you now, I've learned after the fact. So uh, my old boss at Ticketmaster in Chicago had moved to Los Angeles and had become chairman of Ticketmaster. And he said, you know, if you want to be in the thick of things with technology and ticketing and ultimately all forms of live entertainment, sports, music, etc., this is where it's happening. And, it, and uh, my wife had just had our second kid literally weeks before this. So she was in an extreme moment of weakness <laughs> where, uh, where she in sleep deprivation, where she agreed to move to Los Angeles. Was it February by any chance in uh, Chicago? <laughs> timed well. Timed well. So um, Mark Cuban was a, a partner of ours. Mark's the predecessor to Broadcast.com was a company called AudioNet. And AudioNet was essentially a reseller of progressive networks, which became real networks. And what he was doing is he was going to college basketball teams who didn't have radio deals or coverage, and he was broadcasting their games on the Internet, streaming them on the Internet. And he aggregated a bunch of them and I think smartly changed the name from AudioNet to Broadcast.com and eventually sold that to Yahoo for about $5.5 billion at the peak of madness in the dot-com craziness yeah, of... V1 the, madness. Yeah. V1 madness. So Mark was chasing us for our business to stream our concerts. Smart as Mark is, he was smarter because he had a partner named Todd Wagner who really was smart. And Todd was, was the guy who really put the business together. But that was, you know, early Internet days. Mark was hustling for business just like everybody else. But uh, Broadcast.com uh, did quite well, quite well, or Mark did quite well. Yahoo did not do well in buying Broadcast.com. So Ticketmaster, the job was uh, overseeing all mergers and acquisitions, strategy, business development, corporate development, of which I knew virtually nothing about. Uh, I had never done M&A work. Um, I certainly knew what strategy was, but not necessarily at the scale at the corporate level at Ticketmaster. Strategy is fun without accountability. That's yes, yes. <laughs> um, but I got, it was, a, it was a baptism by fire. I just got sort of thrown into the deep end in the, the first week I was there, ended up, you know, doing a presentation to, to Barry Diller. And, you know, I think I probably uh, threw up before I went into the room. And, you know, I, I got all sorts of coaching. Barry is, he's, he's very interesting. He's very different in a group environment than he is one-on-one. -on -one. But he is incredibly bright. He gets to the heart of an issue in a moment. And he suffers no fools. So you, you have to build your argument with appropriate amount of data to support your argument, but not too much data that you bore him. And he will figure out the problem faster than you will get to explaining what the problem is. And he will get to the solution to that problem faster than you can get to explaining your solution to that problem. And it was about sort of managing that dynamic. But... Um, you know, historically, Ticketmaster had shunned working with artists directly. 
at the expense of its brand and its reputation because we only worked directly with venues and promoters at that point. But we started uh, reaching out directly to artists to try and figure out what was important for their goals and what they wanted to drive in their careers. Um, fortunately, there were there were some good people on the other side who recognized that Ticketmaster actually uh, could help drive artist goals and drive uh, meaningfully uh, revenue lines and strategy for the artist. So that whole division uh, was created sort of out of thin air to be an entity to develop rela- relationships directly with artists. On the M&A side, I bought ticketing companies in... Spain, Denmark, Finland, Turkey, uh, New Zealand, Australia. I secured Ticketmaster, the ticketing contract for the Beijing Olympics in 2008, um, all of which I had no business doing. Um, But he just did it. And uh, at a point where I left, 40% of Ticketmaster's EBITDA was coming from outside the U.S., and a lot of it was through the acquisitions that that we had done. Now, we had some playbooks. We would look to see where promoters had rolled up, um, so it was easier to go in and and make sure you could secure a lot of ticketing inventory in a given country if there was one promoter to do a deal with. Um, But the rules were different in different countries, so you had to pay a lot of attention to that. You know, and the last thing I did on the, the sort of straight biz dev or strategy side was work on some of our early distribution deals where we actually allowed partners to uh, have ticket links on their site and link back to us to sell tickets, which, you know, before then really wasn't done either. So um, I remember once being at a conference in maybe 96, 97, maybe 98 at the latest, but I think it was earlier than that, when Fred Rosen was the keynote, mm-hmm. and somebody got up from the audience, and um, for those of you who were paying attention back then, Ticketmaster was suing Microsoft. Sidewalk, was it, or City yep. Search? Sidewalk. So the Sidewalk was uh, during this era when the original internet portals had uh, city-based, localized versions of their content, and... Um, Microsoft Sidewalk um, had event listings on their site because, of course, if you have a local version of your website, you're going to point to things to do in your locality. And they would link to the event pages to buy tickets. And Ticketmaster sued them to stop them from deep linking into the site. They Um, weren't making any revenue off of it. Yeah, it Hmm. it was simply driving traffic to Ticketmaster. I don't remember, the exact argument was you're... You're using our content? I forget what the argument they, was. It didn't make sense at the time, but I, I, I want to be generous and think maybe there was something about it that made sense. But I don't think it made sense. They, the argument was that those links were Ticketmaster's intellectual property and that Microsoft was trying to build traffic to a site based upon Ticketmaster's intellectual property and therefore they needed to have a deal with Ticketmaster in order to be able to link to their site. How, how late were you at Ticketmaster? Our CEO left, a guy named John Pleasance, and Barry Diller did a very Barry Diller thing, which is he didn't name a new CEO. He created the office of the CEO, and he put myself and Sean Moriarty, who was our COO, in to, to run the company as a bit of a two-headed monster. And... Ultimately, Barry decided to spin out five of the companies within IAC, Home Shopping Network, I guess it was Expedia. Ask wasn't spun, uh, wasn't big enough to do it on its own. Um, There was one called um, Interval International, which was a timeshare trading platform, and Ticketmaster uh, was one of them. And so to do a public company spin, you actually do need a CEO of the company. You can't have an office of the CEO. And so he made Sean the CEO, which was very apparent that I wasn't going to go any higher in the company. I left in, this was like 2008, late 2008. And, that recent, okay. And then a, uh, a, um, a good friend of mine back to the Pritzker family that used to own Ticketmaster, J.B. Pritzker, who's now the governor of the state of Illinois, ironically. Uh, J.B. had an investment firm of his own, and he had invested in the largest legal sports wagering site in the U.S., which was based in Woodland Hills, California, in the, in the valley. And a public company, horse race betting, again, I never ran a public company. I don't bet, and I don't know anything about horse racing. And so he asked me if I'd run it. And um, 
And after learning a bit about it, I, you know, when, when someone like that asks you to do something, you do it. And it was a great experience. Um, I got to take the public company CEO notch on my belt. Uh, if it never happens again, that'll be a wonderful thing. We ended up selling that business to Churchill Downs, uh, the horse racing conglomerate at this point. It was a great Again, another learning experience for me, not just running a public company, but figuring out how to sell a public company. And then after that, I did a series of startups, a couple of which flamed out horrifically. Um, I learned how to take a company into Chapter 11 bankruptcy, run it through Chapter 11, and actually conduct a successful sale out of Chapter 11. Again, never need to do that again great experience, don't need to do it again. But I also started this advisory work where I started working with companies uh, like William Hill, who's a big uh, British bookmaking operation. They run retail storefronts, betting shops all through uh, the UK, but they also have a big online business for sports betting in, in the UK and Europe where all forms of, of wagering online are legal. Um, and they were looking at market entry into the U.S., and so I helped them as, a, as an advisor uh, with that. AEG at the time had agreed to let Live Nation and Ticketmaster merge. When I say agreed, the Justice Department had AEG sign on to a consent decree, which just was in the news quite a bit lately. And part of that was AEG had the ability to either take an instance of Ticketmaster's technology and then use it on their own, or get into the ticketing business for themselves. And Tim Lewicki, who was running AEG at the time, had me come on and help them create what is now Access. Uh, everything from acquiring the URL to doing uh, market research on the name to evaluating the available ticket platforms that were out there and ultimately into hiring Brian Perez into, to run the business, who's still there now. Through this, met folks like TPG Capital, who I now have a strong relationship with, CVC Capital, another private equity firm who owns DTI Management. Uh, and I have to say over the past few years, I probably have the least amount of stress I've had in my life. I travel a lot. I do travel a lot. That is the downside. But as a you know husband and parent, I'm a lot more present when I am present. And I can control my travel around family events, important things in my kids' lives and whatever. So I feel like I've got a lot of freedom that way. And when I work at home, I literally work in the attic of my house. So there's no commute time. Mm -hmm. That helps the stress part, too. Yeah. So when you think about ticketing in the United States, what, what are your prognostications or what, what's, your, what's your philosophy or worldview on the state of affairs and where things are going? It's been reasonably steady for a long time. I just think that the primary issuer of the ticket, and when I say primary issuer, I don't mean the primary ticketing company. I mean whoever is at risk for an event, a promoter, a sports team, a Broadway theater producer, that owner, uh, that, that capital investor in that event is going to have complete control and say so how those tickets are sold initially and whether or not they are resold, and how and under what terms they are resold or traded. And I think that is a very good thing for consumers. I think it's a very good thing for artists in the case of music, because I think what it can do in, in sports and, and so forth, it allows the money to stay within the ecosystem for the people that are actually taking the risk to provide the entertainment for the consumer. I don't think it means that the secondary market goes away. Mm -hmm. I think secondary market and good reputable brokers play valuable roles in that market, but I think their margins will likely shrink. Um, I think some will go away. I think being a middle market broker is going to be difficult, but that's the same in every industry on the planet. Middle markets in just about every industry end up getting squeezed out on the margin side. Small businesses can exist. 
big businesses can exist, but yeah. the ones in the middle have a hard time. And I think that's the shakeout you, you are seeing and will continue to see in the secondary market. But I think that, that control is enabled by technology. You, you look at you know what you guys are able to do by working with rights holders. You look at what Ticketmaster has you know in their arsenal. We created, when I was a Ticketmaster, we created paperless ticketing, which is, I guess, now a taboo term. But um, it was uh, Tom Waits' manager, who's a good friend of mine, Stuart Ross, was doing all of his work. And Tom Waits used to require every fan go to the box office to pick up their tickets to show their ID that they were the one who bought the tickets, pick up their two tickets at the box office, and then go right into the venue so that the tickets could not be resold in any way, shape, or form. His shows all started two hours late because filing people through two box office windows took that long. And he said, isn't there a better way we can do this and accomplish the same goal? The only person that made any money on that was the union. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Both, both the box office union and the stagehand union. The solution was simply to you know, tie the, the purchase to the credit card that made the purchase. And we created a system. This was before Square existed. So you could swipe the credit card on a, a device on your hip. And it would print out what we called seat locator receipts because ultimately you had to know where you were sitting in the venue. We call those tickets. No. <laughs> seat lo- these were not tickets. Um, we got it so that you could swipe and have them both printed out within one and a half seconds, which seemed like an acceptable time period. We could have dozens of people at the doors to do it. And we got the crowds in on time. And it accomplished what Tom Waits wanted, which was no resale of tickets. Literally, the person who buys the tickets have to, has to go. And if someone couldn't go, we would refund them and resell them in the same manner. And he was comfortable doing it because he said, look, if I don't sell those tickets, I'm comfortable taking the hit on it. But again, that was the artist setting the rules for how they wanted it. Uh, they wanted their ticket sales and distribution to, hand, to be handled. I just think that was the earliest stage of this control being in the hands of the, the ultimate provider of the entertainment. Yeah, it's interesting your your comment about the middle market going away. I was having a conversation with someone last night about um, how that applied in the world of uh, sync rights for record mm-hmm. labels. You know, uh, indie record labels over the last, especially the last 20 years or so, have done a great business in commercial and mm-hmm. film licensing, and it's really allowed a lot of them to not necessarily mask a lot of the changes to their core business, but to survive through yep. the transition as streaming has come to scale. And all those people are getting squeezed out. So now every film with an end credit song, you know, it's going to be fine for Adele. Mm-hmm. She'll do okay with with, with sync rights. Yep. But for some of those, uh, for some of the indie labels out of the UK or or alternative labels where they could get a hit on the back of a movie, that that's sort of gone away for them. And it's sort of the haves and the have-nots in that business as well. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, you you can call capitalism a flawed system, but that is one of the flaws, that it, it does squeeze out that middle market eventually. Yeah. What else are you working on? What's interesting right now? Lots going on in the world of sports betting. Actually, I wanted to come back to that for one second. I think yeah. when you first got into the sports betting world um, in the sort of end of the first decade of the 2000s, it seemed like... There was so much momentum because of the financial crisis mm-hmm. that I think everybody thought, oh, the states are going to open this up because they need the revenue, mm-hmm. um, similar to the the decriminalization with yep. certain drugs. And it was a little bit too early. It didn't quite happen. And it took uh, the better part of another decade to get there. What happened? Why, why did it take that extra amount of time? Well, it seemed like so inevitable in the moment that it was about to all break open. What changed? Um, don't underestimate the political power of fundamentalists who, whether for religious reasons or other reasons, were against marijuana legalization. It's going to lead to addiction and, and you know every bad problem you could possibly come up with. Same thing with gambling. It's going to lead to problem gambling. Um, expansion of gambling is a bad thing in any way, shape, or form. And I think it, it just took time, same for marijuana, same for, for sports betting, for people to wear down those arguments and ultimately for the states to be equally as desperate for revenue without raising taxes. And what I think was really most compelling in, in, in true in sports and certainly true in, in marijuana 
you weren't sort of creating a, a new habit for people. You were simply taking an activity they were already partaking in illegally that really wasn't safe for them as consumers and certainly wasn't providing any protections or tax revenue. And you're creating a legal avenue for that same activity to be done, all the while protecting the consumer and creating tax revenue. And you've seen that in marijuana legalization, and you've certainly seen it in the states that have legalized sports betting. You're not creating a new generation of people to bet on sports. You're taking people that used to have an offshore bookie, and you're now giving them a legal avenue by which to do it. And I don't I don't think there's anybody who is, if given the choice, and economics are largely the same, is going to say, yeah, I'll keep breaking the law. That's fine. Even though this is legal, I'm going to keep breaking the law. Yeah. And it took a while to wear all that down. It's and a consumer protection play more than anything else. It, it really is. Yeah. It's interesting, to in the sort of shameless self-promotion part of it, that's, that's very much Light's model, right? We're taking an activity that we know certain people either get into speculatively or, or forced into because they can't use their ticket. They have mm-hmm. nothing else to do with it. They're forced to go find a way to get out of the position and sell it somewhere. There's a buyer for that who is assuming a lot of risk because it could be a printed out PDF or what have you. So we're taking all that activity that's happening anyway mm-hmm. and just putting it in an environment where everybody on both sides of the transaction knows it's safe, knows it's up and up. And by the way, the rights holder gets their tax on it um, and gets a lot of insight into sort of what happens with their tickets once they're released into the wild. Um, I think it's a very similar or, mm-hmm. a, or a fair analogy. My my simplest equation in in the world of live music is... Only two people matter, an artist and a fan. That's it. Everyone else is a middleman. We're all middlemen, middle women, middle people. And you either add value in that equation between the artist and the fan, or you get the fuck out of the way, or you'll be pushed out of the way. And that's it. You found a way to come in and add value to both sides of that equation. And that's hugely valuable. Um, Those that are in the middle taking pieces of it by not adding value to either side of the equation are the ones who ultimately get pushed out of the way. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Um, I wasn't even paid for that. (laughs) (laughs) A big, big thank you to David Goldberg and a thank you for spending time with Spotlight On. Remember that Spotlight On is available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and most anywhere else you get your podcasts from. Spotlight On is produced and edited by Craig Snyder, and our theme music is Little Rock by my hero, Sonny Chirac. Thank you to Aunt Taylor and the entire Light family. If you're interested in what we're up to at Light, visit light.com. Keep your feedback coming. Reach me at lawrence at light.com. That's L-A-W. R-E-N-C-E at L-Y-T-E dot com. And if you like what we do, please share us with a friend or post a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. That would be swell. Thank you so much. Be safe and stay in touch. <laughs>